Calvin Griffith was at a holiday cocktail party in 1975 when he got the news. Griffith was the longtime owner of the Minnesota Twins, a Major League Baseball team. And he was sipping his spiked eggnog when a reporter tracked him down and told him what had happened. An arbitrator had just nullified the reserve rule in baseball. For the first time in a century, baseball players were going to be free agents. Calvin Griffith just stared at the reporter. His eyes widened. And then finally he said, and I am quoting here, Oh, shit. The reserve rule was the standard clause in every major league contract existing since the 1870s that allowed teams to reserve their players for their entire playing careers. Now, for the owners, the reserve rule was the foundation of baseball. For 100 years, the owners, they defended the reserve rule by saying this is the rule that brings stability to baseball because it keeps players from moving from team to team. This was the rule, they said, that maintained competitive balance in the game. It kept wealthy teams from stockpiling all the good players. But most importantly, the reserve rule was used to contain salaries in baseball. Now look, the owners rarely said that out loud, but in their mind, this was the number one asset of the reserve rule. It kept salaries down by keeping baseball players off the open market. You know, if you are reserved and no one else can bid for your services, your salary is not going to go up. But the players thought of the reserve rule differently. Baseball players, white and black, players in the 1880s and the 1970s, they called the reserve rule, and once again, here I am quoting, they called the reserve rule slavery. This is American Sport, and I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. The pundits and the statistics, they tell me that Americans are no longer all that interested in baseball, younger Americans especially. You know, every year someone writes an article that says, baseball is dying, it's, it's on the way out. Just in the past few months, I've read apocalyptic reports that esports and drone racing are going to surpass baseball in popularity. I suspect many of you have little interest in the game. Well, first of all, shame on you. Baseball was awesome. But, no, I get it. The game can be pretty darn slow. Um, There's that great Simpsons episode where Homer gives up drinking beer, goes to a baseball game, and says soberly, I never realized how boring this game is. But whatever your thoughts are on the game of baseball today, If you were interested in power dynamics in sports, if you were interested in the story of how sports are organized, if you have any interest in the us versus them labor battles that sometimes lead to strikes and lockouts in the world of sports, no matter the sport, this is a story that begins with the reserve rule in baseball. Allow me to be an American history nerd for a quick second. Way back in the 1830s, there was a group of American intellectuals known as the Transcendentalists. Does that name ring a bell, maybe from your high school English classes? The the, the Transcendentalists, they were a group of thinkers who argued against the idea of predestination. They argued against the widely held idea that a God has a plan for everyone and that one's fate and their future are predetermined, that your life is predestined. 
the transcendentalists. They said hogwash. Human beings have control over their own fate and future. It is up to the individual. The Babe Ruth of transcendentalists was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And as Emerson put it, man is a free agent. People control their own destiny. This philosophical idea of free agency, it's one of the central values of this nation. It's at the core of the American notion of freedom. You can do what you want and go where you want. You are a free agent. And this freedom applies to the marketplace. You you can work where you want to. You have a choice. And if you don't like your job or your employer, or if someone else offers you more money, you can quit and go work for someone else. You are a free agent. Well, for 100 years, baseball players were not free agents. When it came to baseball, they could not go where they wanted. And that's because of the reserve rule. The National League, which still exists today, it was formed in 1876, America's 100th birthday. So that's very easy to remember. The National League was the creation of businessmen, businessmen who sensed that there was real money to be made in the game of baseball. But they were men who thought that in order to make baseball profitable, they needed to bring a strict order to the game of baseball. So they created this league, and then they set out to bring order and stability to their league. They did a lot of things. You know, There were rumors that baseball players were throwing games for the benefit of gamblers. So they forbid betting on baseball, and they closed the gambling windows at their parks. The male spectators, the owners thought, were getting a little too rowdy at their games. So they banned the sale of alcohol in their ballparks. And they tried to get the men to behave better by encouraging women to attend the games. It turned out women could get pretty rowdy as well. But what really bothered the owners was the way the players were moving from team to team during the offseason. It was known back then as revolving. Players were always looking for the highest bidder for their services. They were revolving or switching teams after every season and going where the money was. So in 1879, the owners of the teams in the National League, they came up with this new rule, the reserve rule. In 1879, the National League team owners, they agreed that National League teams could reserve their players. All the other teams promised never to negotiate with another team's players. So whichever team you signed with first, that team reserved you for the entirety of your National League career. So if you wanted to play baseball in the National League, and you did because that was the top league, the premier league, And if your team still wanted you, you had to play for that team, and you had to play for what they offered you. You could never see what you could get for your services on the open market because the other National League teams would never bid on you. Let's do some role-playing here to bring this idea home. I am a team owner, and you are one of my players. I have signed you, an up-and-coming ball player, to a contract. Congratulations, you're in the big leagues now. That's great. You should be very proud. But now, if you want to keep playing Major League Baseball, you have to play for me, and you have to play for what I offer you. We can negotiate. You can threaten not to play, and that's the leverage that you ultimately have, because I do want you to be on my team. But ultimately, now that you signed that first contract with me, 
If you want to play baseball moving forward, you have to play for me, and sorry, you're going to have to play for what I am willing to offer you. Well, the players, they didn't like this. They did not like being reserved in perpetuity. They grew to resent this rule, deeply resent it. They argued against the reserve rule. The the reserve rule is not fair, they said. It's un-American, they said. In America, a man should get what he's worth on the open market. But the reserve rule prevents this. So it's unfair, it's un-American, and actually, as I told you, the word they used was slavery. The reserve rule is baseball slavery. The players did not flinch from using this word, even though America was only about a decade away from the era of actual slavery, right? This was the 1870s. But the white men who played in the National League back then, and it was almost all white men, they thought of it like this. In a capitalist country, if you are not able to go on the open market and get market value for your services, then you are not free. And if you are not free, then what are you? Well, you're the opposite. You're a slave. Over the years, the players tried different ways to gain their freedom, to to, to exercise their free agency. They took the baseball owners to court. Twice, the reserve rule was challenged in cases heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1920s and the 1970s. You may know this, in the 1970s, it was the baseball player, Kurt Flood, who described himself as, quote, a well-paid slave as he challenged the reserve rule. The commissioner of baseball was a guy named Bowie Kuhn. We'll talk much more about him in a moment. He told Kurt Flood if he was choosing not to obey the reserve rule, then he was choosing not to play baseball. And the Supreme Court agreed. Turns out the Supreme Court justices, they liked their baseball the way it was the reserve rule could stay. Instead of taking it to court, sometimes the players took their talents to rival leagues, rival leagues that offered them more freedom and more money. There was something called the Federal League in 1915. It lured players away from Major League Baseball by offering them bigger contracts. But then the Federal League, it only lasted a couple of years. In the late 1940s, a Mexican cigar factory owner named Jorge Pascal, he enticed a handful of major league players to come play in his Mexican league. That was the title, the Mexican league. Already on shaky ground, the league crumbled in 1955 when Pascal was killed in a plane crash. But the most intriguing challenge to the reserve rule came way back in 1890. And I know that was a long time ago, but this is fascinating. In 1890, the players did something interesting. And what they did was, in my opinion, the most radical moment in the history of American sports. Not the most radical moment in this podcast, and not the most radical moment in the history of baseball. This was the most radical moment in the entire history of American sport. In 1890, the players, they formed their own league. They said, see you later to their National League bosses, and they formed something called the Players National League. Now, the Players National League was a league with no reserve rule. Every player would become free at the end of the season, and they could seek market value for their services. They would become what today we call free agents. 
And more than this, this was a league where the players, they were all co-owners of the teams. So they shared in the profits. The Players National League was a baseball cooperative. And it was successful for a year. Many of the National League's top players, they defected to the Players League, and they brought the fans with them. And in 1890, the only year this league was in existence, the Players League was presenting a product that was superior to the National League. They drew more fans than the National League. But it it didn't last. The National League owners, they fought back. They mounted costly lawsuits. They sued players for breach of contract. The courts sided with the players, but it was a costly legal battle. National League owners, they gave away free tickets to their games. Don't pay your hard-earned money to watch the Players League. Come to our games for free. Both the National League and the Players League lost money, but it was the much less established Players League that folded first after just one season. And so the experiment of a player-controlled league failed. But let's pause for a second and appreciate the radicalness of this moment. This was the end of a unique experiment in professional sports. It was a vision of baseball and all professional sports, really, as a player-controlled business. This could have been the way professional sports developed, with the players being in charge of their leagues, with with the laborers being in charge of their product. Well, it can't happen today, you might think. But are you sure? I, I think it could happen. Lacrosse players are actually trying it right now, for the record. They're, they're trying it in something called the Premier Lacrosse League. We will see how that goes. But could this happen in major American sports? Maybe it can't happen in baseball. It, it is hard to imagine a player's league in baseball today with the game's lack of marketable stars. But I, I just keep thinking, what about a personality-driven league like the NBA? The players, they could decide to do something like this, form a new league that they control, a league where they are the owners and they are the operators. I mean, after all, who do you want to see play basketball? Do you want to watch LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and James Harden play basketball? Actually, if you like watching James Harden play basketball, you are insane. But don't get me started there. Or, Or, okay, do you want to watch LeBron and Durant and Curry play the game? Or are you interested in watching just anyone in a Warriors or a Lakers or a Nets jersey? I'm interested in the players. And so I think a player controlled league could work. That would be fascinating. But to go back to the year 1890, professional baseball players, they tried to change the power dynamics of professional sports, but they failed. And ever since that moment, professional athletes in team sports have been employees. So the reserve rules stayed. And the players could not become free agents and control their movements and their baseball destinies. And here's one of the things I find so interesting about this. Nobody cared. Baseball fans didn't care. They just wanted their baseball. I know I didn't care. 
Growing up in the 1970s and 80s as a huge San Francisco Giants fan, just give me my Giants in their pumpkin orange jerseys. You know, give me Johnny LaMaster and John Montefusco and Joe Morgan, death to the Dodgers and all that good stuff. But I did not want to hear about baseball salaries and players feeling underpaid and strikes and holdouts. That's for the auto industry. Now, this is baseball. Are baseball players stars? Yes. Heroes? Sure. Gods? Yeah, sometimes. You hear me, Reggie Jackson? But we don't like to think of them as workers. We are workers, right? We are plumbers and teachers and bus drivers and accountants and baristas. We punch the clock or fill out our timesheets and we work. Playing baseball, that's not work. That's a game. And it's a game many of us would love to play. We'd play for free, we say. Though we wouldn't, of course, because everyone needs to get paid. But in the salary battles between players and owners, for a whole century, the owners almost always had the general public on their side. I find it interesting that for a hundred years, Americans worshipped ballplayers. But when it came to their contracts, the average American sided with the wealthy team owners much more than with the players. It's because we thought the players should feel lucky to play ball for a living. They should feel grateful. What we should have realized is what the baseball players wanted is what we all want. We want what the market will bear for our services and not one penny less. But there was no market, and that is because of the reserve rule. And then in the late 1960s came Marvin Miller. And for the players who were hoping to end decades of reserve clause enslavement, Marvin Miller is going to play the role of Moses. I teach a course called Baseball in American History, and I'm often asked, who is on my baseball Mount Rushmore? All right, I know Mount Rushmore has only four faces on it, but I'm in charge here, so I'm going with five. The five most significant characters in the history of the game of baseball are Albert Spaulding, who was the guy most responsible for the success of the National League and that reserve rule. That was really his idea. You have Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Branch Rickey, who's the guy who opened the door for Jackie Robinson, and Marvin Miller. Those five. And the only one of those five who never played baseball was Marvin Miller. Miller was not a baseball guy. He was an economist. He was a labor organizer. He had actually been the head of the Union for the United States Steel Workers. But in 1966, he decided to do something else. He agreed to lead the Major League Baseball Players Association. This was the Baseball Players Union. And here's how I see it. In every negotiation from now on between the players and the owners, the players have a huge advantage. And that advantage is Marvin Miller. He's the smartest guy in the room every single time. Miller becomes head of the Major League Baseball Players Association in 1966, and he has one ultimate goal. He wants to get rid of the reserve rule. He wants the players to have freedom of movement and to hit the open market. But he knows he has to keep the issue of the reserve rule out of the courts. Judges, he knows this, they will never rule against the baseball owners and a reserve rule that previous Supreme Courts had upheld. 
He knew this before Kurt Flood ever sued in the early 1970s. Marvin Miller tried to convince Kurt Flood not to sue. He told him, you will lose. And Marvin Miller, as always, was right. So Miller needs to find another way to get rid of the reserve rule. And so he goes to work. Here's what he did. Marvin Miller went around the league and he met with the players from every team. And he asked them, tell me your grievances. Tell me any grievance that you have with your job at all. The players didn't trust him at first. They were wary of this non-baseball guy with his pencil-thin mustache and his radical labor speak. But the Hebrewites didn't trust Moses right away either. Eventually, Miller got the players to open up, and, and, and they told him about the, the dangerous steel scoreboards in the outfield at some stadiums. They didn't like those. They complained about the dumpy hotels they had to stay in. They didn't like playing doubleheaders the day after night games. The more modern players, who were no longer sporting crew cuts, they said they wanted outlets in the locker rooms for their hair dryers. Some of the players thought this was funny, but Miller said, no, this is good. Give me all your complaints, every single one. Nothing is too small. And here's why he says this. Back then, every grievance and complaint from the players was heard by the commissioner. Now remember, and never forget, the commissioner in every sport, the commissioner works for the owners. The owners pay the commissioner's salary. The commissioner is their employee. So the commissioner is not unbiased or objective, right? He works for the owners. He works to keep them happy. So what Miller wants to do here is create another arbiter. He wants another body or a group to consider grievances. So he bombards the commissioner's office with all these issues. That hotel in St. Louis is no good. We need electrical sockets in the Pittsburgh clubhouse and so on. And then he convinces the owners that it's much too time-consuming and beneath the dignity of the commissioner to be hearing grievances about hotels and hairdryers. And he gets the owners to accept the idea of an arbitration panel. This is a panel that would hear players' grievances and decide on all these issues. Arbitration panels were standard in most businesses, like in the steel business where Miller had come from. The owners thought, fine, why not? But when Marvin Miller gets the owners to agree to this arbitration panel, he has created the weapon with which he will kill the reserve clause. Okay. When Marvin Miller took control of the Major League Baseball Players Association, he carefully studied the reserve rule that was in every player's contract. It's paragraph 10A of the standard player's contract. And Miller was looking for a loophole. But as he later explained it, he didn't find a loophole. He found a gaping hole. Now, here's where I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I could read you paragraph 10a. We could go through it sentence by sentence, word by word. But I want you to like me. I, I want to be your friend. Paragraph 10a is soul-numbing American legalese at its absolute worst. It really is madness. So let's try this instead. Let me just tell you how the whole contract system worked. And let's go back to that role-playing. Role-playing's fun. Let's go back to that role-playing we were doing earlier, right? I'm the team owner, and you are my player. And that's the way I think of it as an owner. You are my player, my baseball possession. 
And it's the 1970s now, man. So as a baseball team owner, you know, I'm wearing plaid pants. I got on a pastel sports coat and a wide tie. Required gear for major league owners in that decade. I look good. And since it's the 1970s, you, the player, you need a haircut. Anyway, our season is over, and now it's time for us to negotiate your salary for next year. We meet to discuss your contract. But I have all the leverage, because there's nowhere else you can go. I reserve you. And in these negotiations, I have tricks up my sleeve. So many tricks. You know, you and I, we might verbally agree on a salary, and then you go out and you buy a house or a car. But then I send you a contract for less than what we verbally agreed on. You can complain, but what are you going to do? You already spent that money. You're stuck. Or how about this? Maybe I'll do what the Dodgers general manager Buzzy Bavese used to do. You come into my office and you tell me you want, say, oh, $50,000 a year. While we're talking, I make sure that you can see a contract for another player on my desk. A player who is better than you. And you see that that player only makes $35,000 a year. That's what I offer you, $35,000. And you take it, because that's what the player who is better than you is making. But he's not making that. He's actually making twice that. The contract is a fake. A fake that I drew up to dupe you. You just got took. So I've got all these dirty tricks at my disposal. But here's the part that's key. Here is how the reserve rule worked in detail, right? And here's how it worked for decades. According to the reserve rule, paragraph 10a, I have to mail you a contract for the upcoming season by January 15th. You have until March 11th to sign the contract, which you do. But even if you don't sign the contract, it clearly says in paragraph 10a that if you want to play baseball, you have to play for the amount that I offered you. But basically, the contract I mailed you just becomes our agreement. But here's where it gets interesting. As an owner, I think I can just keep doing this over and over, sending you whatever contract I want every year, and if you want to play, you have to play under that contract, year after year. But now I'm in trouble because you now have Marvin Miller on your side. And Marvin Miller has a different interpretation. As a labor lawyer, he's read paragraph 10a very carefully. And he thinks that if you don't sign that contract, I can invoke the reserve rule and make you play for that contract for one year. He agrees with that part. But he says, if you don't sign the contract, I can reserve you and make you play for that contract for one year and one year only. And that is the key to the whole thing. After that year, Marvin Miller says, you are free. Miller says, if you don't sign that contract and then play under the terms of that contract, after that season, you are free. You are free to become a free agent. Marvin Miller noticed this and he, and he showed paragraph 10a to a bunch of lawyers and they all agreed with his interpretation. Most of the lawyers were actually stunned when they saw the actual reserve rule. That's it? One lawyer said he always imagined the reserve rule being inscribed on a stone tablet, you know, word of God, that sort of thing. Marvin Miller thinks the reserve rule is as flimsy as the paper it's printed on. So now Marvin Miller needs a test case. 
It could have been anyone, really, but it ends up being a guy named Andy Messersmith, who was a very good pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Andy Messersmith wasn't especially interested in challenging the reserve rule. What he wanted was a no-trade clause in his contract. He liked living in Los Angeles, but the Dodgers refused to give him this in his contract. So in January of 1975, the Dodgers send Messersmith a contract. By March 11th of 1975, Messersmith has not signed that contract. He had not signed it on purpose. The Dodgers said, fine. They use paragraph 10A to compel him to play under this contract for the year, the 1975 season. The Dodgers thought they could keep doing this, renewing his contract year after year. But Marvin Miller and Andy Messersmith disagreed. So after the 1975 season, they announced that Messersmith was now free. They claimed he was free to negotiate with other teams. The Dodgers disagreed. So in the fall of 1975, the dispute went not before the courts, but before that three-person arbitration panel that Marvin Miller had created, had strategically created years earlier. The owners, they had a representative on this panel. He ruled against Messersmith. The players, they had a representative on this panel. It was Marvin Miller. He ruled in favor of Messersmith. The key neutral third party agreed upon by both sides was a man named Peter Seitz, a respected lawyer and a skilled arbitrator. As part of the arbitration agreement, both sides were legally bound to honor his decision. Either side could fire Peter Seitz after the decision, but the decision was still binding. Well, Peter Seitz did not want to be fired, so he urged the two sides to come to an agreement, a compromise. Marvin Miller said he was willing to discuss amending the reserve rule, but the owners absolutely refused to negotiate. They stubbornly told Peter Seitz to rule. And so Peter Seitz made his ruling. He looked at paragraph 10a, and based on the words in the document, he agreed with Marvin Miller. Andy Messersmith was a free agent. And as of that moment, all players needed to do was play for one year without signing a new contract, and they would become free agents. Every single one of them. Before the ink on the decision was dry, the major league owners, as was their right, they fired Peter Seitz. But the decision stood. This is when Calvin Griffith choked on his eggnog and said, oh, shit. When Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, when he heard about the ruling, Bowie Kuhn sneered and said, Peter Seitz has visions of the Emancipation Proclamation dancing in his eyes. I think he meant that as a bad thing, though one can make the argument that the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of slavery was a good thing. I don't know. That's just my opinion on the matter. Bowie Kuhn, though, he said that Marvin Miller and Peter Seitz, they had just killed baseball. And Kuhn predicted that within a few years, one of the two major leagues, the American or the National League, they would fold. This did not happen. So in 1976, baseball entered the era of free agency. Baseball players could now become free agents. Ralph Waldo Emerson would be pleased. But what happened next? Well, let me tell you what happened to that first free agent, Andy Messersmith. You're going to like this. 
When Messersmith won his baseball freedom, the owners had one last trick up their sleeves. What if no one signed Andy Messersmith? Fine, you're a free agent, but guess what? Nobody wants you. Messersmith became a free agent and he was greeted with almost total silence. No one made him an offer. He had been making $50,000 a year for the Dodgers, but now nothing. Messersmith was in trouble. It looked like the whole reserve rule challenge might backfire. The owners were trying to make free agency a fancy term for unemployment. But then all of a sudden, the new owner of the Atlanta Braves, he offered Andy Messersmith $1 million for three years. Andy Messersmith said, yeah, I'll take that. And this is when the baseball world got their first taste of Ted Turner. Ted Turner would go on to revolutionize the global media world with the creation of CNN in 1980. But in 1976, he was just a local Atlanta TV station owner. He owned and operated a station called Channel 17. You know, during the day, he showed reruns of Leave it to Beaver and the Beverly Hillbillies. And at night, he showed Atlanta Braves baseball. He was actually surprised to find that people would stay up late and watch baseball, the Braves, on his channel. I mean, Ted Turner wasn't a baseball guy. He liked racing sailboats. He was very good at it. But the Atlanta Brave owners at that time, they were talking about moving their team to Toronto. And Ted Turner knew this would be terrible for his TV station. No baseball to show at night. So Turner took a huge financial risk and he bought the Braves just so he would have something to put on Channel 17. Now he owns this team and he wants a star, a famous player. Well, Andy Messersmith was famous. He was in the news for challenging the reserve rule. And so Ted Turner signs Andy Messersmith. But more than that, he gives Messersmith the number 17. And then he pays Messersmith to legally change his last name to Channel. And so on the back of Andy Messersmith's Atlanta Braves jersey, it says Channel 17. Andy Messersmith is a walking billboard for Ted Turner. And if that ain't freedom in the United States of America, then I don't know what is. Andy Messersmith's story, it presaged what came next. The players cashed in. The players have gotten rich beyond their wildest dreams. The, the bidding wars that suddenly took place were astounding. You know, it was not long before merely adequate players were making millions of dollars from win-hungry major league owners. In 1975, the average major league salary was $45,000 a year. This was eight times the average American worker's salary. By 1994, 20 years later, the average major league salary would be almost $600,000 a year. This would be 50 times a worker's salary. And the numbers now, they're even more astounding. The average Major League Baseball salary is $4.4 million a year. And the numbers at the top, they're astronomical. Mike Trout of the Los Angeles Angels, he recently signed a 12-year, $430 million contract. Let me put this in perspective. The median U.S. household income is roughly $60,000 a year. Mike Trout makes $67,000 every at-bat. You can complain. You can say these salaries are ridiculous. You can say that society's values are all out of whack. 
and there is definitely something to all these arguments, but this is market value. A second outcome of free agency. Despite the owner's dire warnings, the competitive balance of baseball has not been compromised. The free agency era has been more balanced and competitive than when the reserve rule was in effect. You know, the reserve rule, it never brought competitive balance to baseball. The Yankees of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, they were the greatest dynasty the game has ever seen, the greatest dynasty in the history of American sports. Once those great teams were intact, other teams were unable to compete. You know, free agency would have broken up those damn Yankees. But consider the first decade after free agency. Between 1978 and 1987, 10 World Series were played and 10 different teams won. That's called parity. That had never happened before. And it continues today, actually. You know, despite all the hand-wringing about big market teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers buying their way to the World Series, there's more parity in baseball than in other sports. The NFL and the NBA owners, they have a salary cap. They say they have a salary cap in the name of parity. Well, even if that were true, it's not working. In the NFL, since 2000, the New England Patriots have appeared in nine Super Bowls and won six. That's not parity. The NBA is the same. Since 2000, the Spurs, Lakers, and Warriors have combined for 19 finals appearances and 13 championships. That's not parity. Meanwhile, in free market Major League Baseball, where there's no reserve rule and no salary cap, since 2001, 14 different teams have won the World Series. The structure of the game of baseball, a game of inches with quirks and chaos, and the fact that a hot pitcher can lead an inferior team to victory, that has assured parity in the game much more than the reserve rule or salary cap ever could. You know what the salary cap really does in the NFL and the NBA? It keeps salaries low. Let's end by going back to Marvin Miller, who, like I said, is on my personal baseball Mount Rushmore. It's quite an honor to be on my baseball Mount Rushmore. But is Marvin Miller in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, this is interesting. Marvin Miller is the guy who brought Major League Baseball into the modern economic era. He brought what I consider to be fairness to the system. And he also brought even more popularity to the game. He made baseball relevant all year long, right? Baseball fans watch the game on the field from April to October. Then we pay attention to the free agency signings from November to March. If you accept the initial supposition that the game of baseball is interesting, it is now interesting 365 days a year. And for those two reasons, for bringing fairness to the economic system, and for bringing more interest into the game, Marvin Miller should be in the Hall of Fame. But for a long, long time, the baseball owners made sure that did not happen. The way it worked for Miller is that he had to be selected for the Hall of Fame by something known as the Veterans Committee. And on this committee were a bunch of baseball executives, the exact same guys that Marvin Miller had outfoxed on his way to killing the reserve rule. These guys, they held a grudge. They voted in the ex-commissioner, Bowie Kuhn, the guy that Marvin Miller had run intellectual circles around in the reserve rule battle. 
the baseball writer Joe Posnoski. He once said that voting in Bowie Kuhn and not Marvin Miller was like voting in the Coyote and not the Roadrunner. Voting in Goldfinger and not James Bond. Voting in Lex Luthor and not Superman. Worse than Lex Luthor? The Veterans Committee, they voted in the super racist owner of the Red Sox, Tom Yockey. But year after year after year, this Hall of Fame committee said no to Marvin Miller. In 2008, after being passed over yet again, Marvin Miller, now in his 90s, he wrote a letter to the Hall of Fame, and he asked them to stop the charade, stop considering him for the Hall of Fame. Here's what he wrote, quote, Paradoxically, I am writing to thank you and your associates for your part in nominating for Hall of Fame consideration, and at the same time, to ask that you do not do this again. I find myself unwilling to contemplate one more rigged veterans committee whose members are handpicked to reach a particular outcome while offering the pretense of a democratic vote. It is an insult to baseball fans, historians, sports writers, and especially to those baseball players who sacrificed and brought the game into the 21st century. At the age of 91, I can do without farce. Marvin Miller died in 2012, but before he passed away, he doubled down and he said this again. It was one of his dying wishes. He told his son, don't let them put me in the Hall of Fame. They treated me like a pariah when I was alive. Don't let them congratulate themselves for their progressive stance by using my name after I'm gone. I think Miller was onto something here. You know, he was pointing out the way Americans are quick to criticize and castigate rebels when they're alive. We condemn those who rock the boat and get us to question the status quo. Martin Luther King Jr., Muhammad Ali. Marvin Miller would never put himself in their category. That's my comparison. But then after these firebrands pass away, you know, and the times, they a-change. When those rebels are eventually proven to have had foresight and to, to be right, Suddenly, everyone celebrates them. Everyone loves them. Oh, we always stood by them, people say. Marvin Miller knew that the men who ran baseball never stood by him. He knew that the men who ran baseball despised him. And he knew that the Hall of Fame committee would never elect him to the Hall of Fame when he was alive. After all, if elected, he would get to give a speech. And the baseball owners were very worried about what he might say about them. So if you're not going to elect me while living, Marvin Miller said, then don't you dare do it when I'm dead. So what do you think happened? In 2019, Marvin Miller was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, something he did not want, something he pleaded with baseball not to do. Always the smartest guy in the room, Marvin Miller knew it was going to happen to him, and he knew when it was going to happen to him after he died and couldn't give that speech and tell people all that's wrong with baseball ownership today. And so once again, someone who forced us to think about our sports differently, someone who got us to think about labor relations in this country, someone who saw the absurdity in the order of things and took the trouble to expose it, that person has now been embraced, or maybe I should say co-opted, by the very people he once exposed as wearing no clothes. 
This is American Sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios, executive produced by Katie Rohn, co-produced by Casey Helmick and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.